And good morning. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. I have some good news. Robert will be back next week, so we're all excited about that. But for now, we're going to continue our walk through the Hall of Faith. That is Hebrews chapter 11. And it is time to put our glasses of faith back on so we can see with the eyes of faith, as God would call us to do. Again, our text is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. This is the Word of God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let us pray. Lord, may we see with the eyes of faith today you and your son Jesus and all that you've done. Would you now speak to us through your word? Make it clear all that you have for us this morning. Open our hearts and our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you a story. That is a legend in my house, not my household, but my family's household, my parents' household. My sister asked for this story frequently. So this is, you're getting an edging, edging family legend here, okay? And this all happened before I was born. <clears throat> so it was, uh, you know, not that long ago, really, if you think about it. <clears throat> but my dad uh, and mom, they were married. They had my older brother at the time. So this is in the middle, mid-70s. And my mom drove a yellow Chevy Vega. It's like a hat, little hatchbacky thing. I think it's two doors. And my dad, one Friday, comes home and looks and sees the car parked. And there's a flat tire. The right rear tire is flat. And then he looks at the, all the other tires, and they're basically bald. He's like, uh, how can you let your car get like this? But nonetheless, he's like, I will, in the morning, I will go and I will we'll get new tires. Not a problem. We're going to do this. I'm going to do it. So in the morning, Saturday morning, 9 a.m., he starts out. He changes the right rear tire, puts the spare tire on the car, throws the bald tire in the trunk, and away he goes. This is easy. He gets not very far when there's another flat. He pulls off at the IHOP. He calls his wife, my mom, and says, I need you to come pick me up. So she drives their other car, an Oldsmobile Cutlass. 
and picks him up. And he takes her home, throws the bad tire in the car, and drives all the way to Sears. Now, he is going to Sears to get his tires uh, fixed, all of them, which is, I don't know if you can do that these days, but that's where he's going. It's about a 30-minute drive, and it's down this sort of main thoroughfare. I have, in my head, I imagine Hicks and Pike when it's four lanes, okay? It's what I, the way he tells it. Anyway, so he's... At high hop, he's not very far. Now he's got the tire. He's on his way to Sears. And he's getting closer, but not really that close. When another tire. Oh, wait, wait, wait. He's at high hop. Sorry, my mom gets him drives. He's in the Vega again, going that way, right? Tire, another tire has gone flat. So he pulls off on the side of the road, gets up on a curb, takes the bad tire, and proceeds to roll it all the way to Sears, okay? Just walks him down the sidewalk all the way to Sears. He finally gets there, and the guy at the uh, uh, shop is like, why don't you just bring them all in at the same time, all right? <clears throat> but, oh, wait, 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 wait. I have messed this story up. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> he gets in the cutlass, drives, gets a tire, comes back, puts it on the Vega, right? And now he's driving. Then he gets a flat. He rolls it all the way down. And that's when the guy's like, he's bought the four tires already, and he's bringing his second one in to get changed. And the guy's like, why don't you just bring them all in at once? Anyways, so he's, uh, he gets that done. He rolls the tire back to his car, you know, on the sidewalk. Now it's a good tire. Puts it on. He's, now he's got three good tires. He's driving towards Sears. When, as you guessed it, the fourth tire, gets flat. But he can see the Sears tire. He's not going to do any more of this tire change of business. So he just slowly drives it all the way into the parking lot. And the guy is there. The guy at Sears is there laughing and seeing him come in again on a flat tire. So uh, he started at 9 a.m. 5 p.m. is when he gets home changing four tires one at a time on uh, the car. But he kept his word. He said he was going to do it. He did it even though it was difficult. And in our passage, all that to say, God kept his word. He did what he said he was going to do. Okay? God is faithful to the promises he makes. Look at verse 13. Right? God has made these promises. And what are these promises? It was promises to Abraham to give a Messiah. To give them a homeland. And to bless them. And, the, and as we progress through the Old Testament, we see that. And we get into the New Testament. What? God has kept his promises to give his people a Messiah, a seed, to give land and blessing. He has done that through his son Jesus. And he kept his promises even though Abraham needed a sign. Even though Sarah laughed. Even though Israel rebelled in the wilderness. Even though Israel and her kings rebelled often. Even though Israel was exiled. None of that stopped God from keeping His promises. You see, God is a faithful God. He will do what He says He will do. And Abraham, Sarah... 
Isaac and Jacob believed that. That's the they, these all died. That's the these in verse 13 from the previous passage. They all believed that God was faithful. They trusted God. That is the foundational principle by which they lived. That is faith in God. And they trusted him even when it was difficult. Even when Abraham and Sarah considered their age, they trusted. They trusted God to keep his promises. And he has kept them. And and we see in verse 16, all the way to the end, he has prepared for them a city. Not he will prepare, he has prepared. It is ready for them. And they are in that city. Now you can imagine this is very helpful to the original readers because they are living in a world and they're tempted to look to worldly solutions and temporary solutions for their, for their problems. They're tempted to lose trust in God. You see, because they're living this Christian life, but it's not as easy as they had hoped. They are being, having property taken from them. They're being falsely accused and they're, they're having to deal with this. And they're like, this Christian thing, should, should it really be this hard? If, if God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, should I face all of this hardship? Does this make sense to, to me? And the author of Hebrews is encouraging them that even God's people have dealt with this. Even, even God's people have dealt with this. And we too deal with this. We are tempted to look to other things to solve our problems, to satisfy our longings. Things like bank accounts to supply our needs or status to show us that we are significant or maybe our children to show a a purpose or our spouse to feel some sense of longing for approval or even good works when we think that's what will make God love us. And we looked to all of those things instead of trusting God. But our text shows us that because God is faithful, we must have faith in Him. We must trust Him. He alone can give us what we long for. And He alone can give us what He has promised. And we need faith in God. Because faith acknowledges reality. Faith acknowledges reality. Reality. Look at verse 13. Starts very grim. These all died in the faith. It doesn't say these all celebrated their successes in the faith. No. The end of every one of their lives is what? They died. They died. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, they all died. And they died not receiving in their time, the fulfillment of the promises of God that He had given them. None of them received the full fulfillment of what God had promised. They acknowledged, again in verse 13, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Which is a curious thing for Abraham, who has been promised the promised land, to, in Genesis 23... Verse 4, he's in the land God has promised to give him and his ancestors. 
And this is what he says in chapter 23, verse 4. To when he wants to buy a field, when he needs land to bury Sarah. He says this, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. He's in the land of promise, and yet he acknowledges the reality that he is a sojourner. And in the Psalms, they, uh, Psalm 39 has this to say. The psalmist says this, uh, David says, For I am a sojourner with you, a guest. Like who? Like all my fathers. You see, David recognized that, acknowledged the reality that all of his fathers, even he, was nothing more than a sojourner. One who is not in their own home, but is traveling in a foreign land. But Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, and Jacob, they were all able by faith to acknowledge this reality. And to acknowledge where they were in the story. They knew fulfillment was not coming to them. That it was far off. And so that meant in the moment... They had struggles and suffering. That meant that they were never going to receive all that God had promised. They were going to have to live with the incomplete fulfillment. And how did they seek to deal with it? Well, not by claiming that anything in this world could alleviate the struggle and the pain and the suffering. Or nothing else could provide significance. Look at verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. You see, they had a promise for land. And they were seeking a land. But what they never considered was to go back to, their, to the land they came from when they had opportunity for. So they're seeking a homeland. They're in the land God promised so what does that mean? That means they're seeking a land that's not just Israel. They're seeking something better. A, a country a, that is a heavenly one. But we'll get to that. The point is, what they're seeking, they could have gone back. Nothing on this. They, what they knew is nothing on this earth could fulfill their longings and their desires. They did not try to grasp this fulfillment. Instead, they acknowledged their reality as sojourners and lived in faith that God would do what he said he would do in his own time. Abraham, Jesus says this about Abraham, living with, with this reality. Your father, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You see, Abraham acknowledged the reality that, that it was far off. He, he looked forward to the day of Jesus and saw it, not in a vision per se, but he perceived what would happen, and it would not be in his own day. And you see, I think a good example for us, or a good illustration of this, is the exile. If you think about the people of Israel are in exile, that is, they're not living in Israel. They've been taken by force to, to live in a foreign country in Babylon. You see, the exiles lived between 
two periods. They live between the memory of God's action on his behalf for his people, and they live between the fulfillment of the promise of God to bring them home. They live in this middle space. In the, in, and in this middle space is the reality of struggle and suffering. They, they're not quite in the old times, and they're not yet in the time to come. They're right where they are, living by faith. And I think this gives illumination to the proper interpretation of Jeremiah 29, 11. I don't know how, about you, but I've probably seen like, I don't know, a lot of articles about the, the most misused verse. Jeremiah 29, 11 is there, okay? And it goes like this. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. This is written to exiles. This is written to people living between the two periods, to people who are suffering and struggling right where they are. And he's like, don't worry, guys. It's not going to be like this forever. I know the plans I have for you. It's not going to be wicked or evil or harm. It's going to be a future and hope. In the meantime, how are they to live? Well, Jeremiah 29 says, tells them, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In the meantime, they, they live as good citizens right where they are, right in that middle period. And this morning, we live between two periods. We're called to live between these two periods. Between the period of God acting in Christ on behalf of his people. Christ who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. And between the period when God will provide an eternal home for his people. We live in this middle space, acknowledging the reality that God will act to Bring us a future welfare to eternity. But we also acknowledge the reality that this has not yet come. And we must wait with struggling and suffering. You see, it is the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all, which seeks to uh, invert this timeline. The prosperity gospel say you can have it all now. When in fact, what they're doing is saying the future promises of God is what you can have now. But in fact, those are not now promises. Those are future promises. And that's what it ultimately gets wrong, is it does not get the timeline of promises correct. In the meantime, what does that mean? That means we should not seek the things of this world to satisfy our longings, which can only be met by God. But rather, we live by faith, knowing that God in Christ has met our greatest need for forgiveness, peace, reconciliation, even adoption into God's family. And that one day we will find an, an eternal home with God. That He has prepared a place where our present reality of struggling and suffering will come to an end. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... We're glad you're here. 
And if you're here coming to the reality that this world cannot satisfy your longings, it cannot, and you're tired of the struggling and the suffering to find meaning and purpose, then come to Christ alone who can fulfill them and who has demonstrated His love for you by dying on the cross so that you could have a new life. And so we know that faith acknowledges the reality of where we are. But faith also expects reward. Faith expects reward. Look at verse 13. That says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, having seen them, the, prom- the things promised, right? They have seen them and greeted them from afar. They hear the promises of God and they say, Lord, we know not now, but we expect that it will come. That we, we know that it will come. Verse 16, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They are living, expecting this reward. They know God will give them this reward and they know this by faith. They lived a life seeking a homeland. But that homeland was the better country. That is a heavenly one. What does it mean to live in expectation of reward? I think this is at least part of it. You live in faith by trusting and obeying God's word. That is, even when God's word doesn't make sense or it's unpleasant to obey... You have faith that God knows best and you trust and obey anyways. And this, I think, shows that you know, you demonstrate that God has a better reward for you. Look at Abraham and Isaac in our next, uh, for next week, it will be verse 17. But it is given as an illustration of living in this reality. Abraham says, Our God tells Abraham to go sacrifice your only son, which is a very specific command to a very specific person, which demonstrates that God himself would sacrifice his own son. But anyways, Abraham offers Isaac up. Why? Because it makes sense? No. To me it doesn't. If it does to you, I'd love to hear it. Um, It doesn't make sense. It is very unpleasant. It was very difficult for Abraham, the text says, his son, his only son, whom he loved. It's very clear that this is not an easy thing for Abraham. And yet he rises and is obedient. Why? Because he's living in faith, expecting a better reward. He knows God has, whatever God says, it's to, is designed to be a blessing to his people. Even if it's a, a hardship in the meantime even if it's uncomfortable and unpleasant. There's actually um, an experiment done on children, not that kind of experiment, but a Stanford marshmallow test. Okay, They got kids in a room. This was done in 1972, by the way. They got kids in a room, and they told the kids, we will give you one marshmallow now. And... You want to eat it? You can eat it. But if you wait 15 minutes to eat that marshmallow, 
we will give you two marshmallows. Double the reward. Living the dream, right? Um, so what they would do is they would make an excuse. The scientists would leave the room, and then they video the kids like, like you could see them just thinking in their mind, what do I do, what do I do? I want that marshmallow right now, but two. And so you could, they, some of them look away. They're like, I don't want to, I don't want to even think about it. Some of them just rock. I mean, and then at the end of the day, some of them just ate the marshmallow. And some of them waited. They just, right then and there. And that's not unlike what we have before us today is we live in expectation of reward. We can grab something right now, but we know that it's much less and will not satisfy as what God has promised us, as the, the reward that we will get. It would be like comparing a marshmallow to, I don't know, a trillion dollars, just using human terms, right? Like, uh, it's like you, you can have all of the, the stuff now, all the status, all the privilege you want right now. But that is nothing compared to the status and privilege of being with God for eternity. And while we may not grasp it, we live in faith that it is so. So today, this very day, we live with eternity in mind. We, not, we live not seeking the temporary satisfaction of this world, but in faith of the eternal reward which God will give us, which is far greater than anything this world can offer. And I want us to think about one cultural issue today. It's kind of a big one. And that is uh, LGBTQ+. It may be expedient. It would probably be easier to give in on this cultural issue. To say, ah, I don't want to fight the fight. I'm just, whatever you tell me to believe, I'll believe it. And we'll get along. We'll go along to get along. We could do that. Of course, <clears throat> but that's not what we want to do, right? We, we need to live in faith. We need to live in obedience to God, even when it is un. Pleasant, even when it may not make sense to us. And so we still love and care for and pray for and share the gospel with really anybody. But in this current time, though it may be unpleasant, we need to stand and say that God created them male and female. And that um, marriage is between one husband or one man and one woman. And it may cost you. It may cost you a job or friends or who knows what else. And if we seek the approval of man, it would be easy to succumb. Then we would have it. But if we live in faith, expecting a reward, then this struggle, it will be a struggle. It is only but temporary. For we know our Father has a heavenly home. We trust that God knows best and has taught us for our ultimate good and for His glory. And this kind of faith that acknowledges reality and expects a reward, this kind of faith pleases God. You see, faith pleases God. Look at verse 16. It says this in the second half of the verse. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. You see, he's not ashamed of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and all of the saints and all of his believers throughout the whole world. Even though they struggle. You see, he's not ashamed of those who struggle in this world, who doubt and ask for a sign like Abraham, who laugh at God's promises like Sarah. He is not ashamed to be called their God. You see, because why? Because they had faith in him. They trusted him. And this pleases him. He is not ashamed. That is to say, he is pleased with them. As Hebrews eleven six 6 tells us. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. That is God. You see, faith pleases God. And in our passage, we see that he is not ashamed to be called their God. Your God, my God, is not ashamed of you this morning. What a blessed thought. He is not ashamed of you. He is pleased. And do you know who else is not ashamed? Who is not ashamed of you? Jesus. Look at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That source being Jesus. That is why he, Jesus, is what? Is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Did you come here this morning with a lot on your mind? With the reality of death, sickness, or pain? Are you struggling with temptation or with family issues? Well, I have good news for you this morning. Jesus is not ashamed of you, your struggles, and your sufferings this morning. He is pleased with you. Why? Because you have turned in faith to him. You, have, you trust Him. You acknowledge the reality. It's all broken. I'm a sinner. But you expect the reward. Lord, I need you to provide what I need. It's only you can do it. And we get the, the first fruits of that with conversion, right? Forgiveness, faith, or forgiveness, peace, reconciliation with God. But we live in faith. We trust Him. And this is, the evidence, this is the essence of the Christian life. To live in faith in Christ. This pleases God and Christ. And they are not ashamed of you. They have their arm around you saying, see, see, I am pleased to be their God. I am pleased to be called their God. And only when we see this, this God who embraces us, who is pleased with us, will, be, will we be able to live in a world 
acknowledging the reality of our suffering, but with faith that God will reward us. You see, God is not ashamed of us, not despite our struggles, but because of our struggles, in the midst of our struggles. Because with our struggles, we turn to him and recognize that we cannot do it, but that we know he will. He is pleased. So this whole sermon really has been explaining the way of our Savior. Look at Hebrews 12, 2, which commands us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus acknowledged the reality of the, the horrors of the cross and the shame that was there. And yet, he endured it. Why? Because he expected the reward. That is, he did it for the joy that was before him, the joy of redeeming a people for himself. And God is pleased with him who, because he set him down at his right hand. Jesus is the way. And so, brothers and sisters, let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And so live in faith, acknowledging the reality of our own suffering and our own struggles in this world. But we live in faith expecting the reward that only God can give knowing that this is the kind of faith that pleases God. But we will not have this faith until we look to, the, to Jesus, who died and rose again on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, this is available to you this morning. No matter what you're going through, this Jesus, we can look to him. Let us pray. Lord, we see you with eyes of faith. And so we ask that you would help us to focus our eyes of faith on your son, Jesus. Help us to live knowing that far from angry or upset with us, that you are not ashamed of us. You are pleased with us. Let us live in light of that this morning. For it's in Jesus' uh, gracious and mighty name we pray. Amen.